Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday, 4.20 p.m. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroyo's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha. I'll be co-moderating today with my good friend, Mandy. What's up? Hey, Keisha. I'm over here fielding questions. So if you guys got one, uh, go ahead and type it in the chat at any time. Um, so if anyone's uh, got a question live on our show, go ahead and unmute yourself and you can ask away or I'll ask for you. Um, we're also going live on our Arroyo channel. Um, so you can go ahead and uh, join us over there if you're not able to join us here. We're taking questions too and uh, subscribe and uh, you'll never miss any of the education that's going on on our channel. There's so much that we add to it, to it every week. So uh, yeah, back to you, Keisha. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. Okay. So first time question askers, uh, you're going to get swag and everybody who's on today will have a chance to win a limited edition Arroyo t-shirt. All you have to do is type your email address into the chat for your chance to win. We're limiting that to U.S. residents and one winner per household. Seth and Jason, how are you guys? I'm doing well. Yeah, hey. good today. How about you, Keisha? I'm good. Good to see you guys. Are you ready for our first question from Instagram? Why not? This is a great one. This is from our friends River, at River City Growers. They ask, how important is labor organization and delegation? And how much can it cost you if you aren't doing it right? And he also left the note, loving tasks, by the way. Uh, I mean, I guess on the, the worst case, it can cost you so much that you can no longer operate your business and nobody has labor anymore uh, at your facility. So that would be definitely the worst case. Uh, you know, I think best case is, is that you have a, a perfect balance on how much hands-on that your plants need and the appropriate amount of process touching and, and those types of activities to keep the best product that you can and, and yet still um, reduce as much wasted labor as possible. Yeah, I mean, this is another agricultural industry, you know, at its heart. And uh, typically the way most of horticulture and agriculture has gone over you know, the course of uh, human civilization is we're always attempting to get more outputs with less inputs. And traditionally, one of the most expensive and most difficult to obtain inputs is labor. So if you're not organized, you're going to be very wasteful. And, you know, also, even if you're not just losing money, if you don't have good organization, your product quality is going to suffer, your yields will suffer. Um, it's not even just about being wasteful in terms of man hours, but you also have to have a competent crew that is well organized and can do things uh, efficiently. And as the industry gets more and more competitive, it, it does it becomes one of the most critical factors at your facility is making sure that uh, you've got qualified, happy employees that are getting the work done as efficiently as they can um, without extra staff that uh, that isn't getting stuff done. So, you know, let's use like a traditional industry, for example, and the strawberry industry, there's a really high level of automation. It's a very seriously scaled system of, of cultivation. And I think that the uh, cultivators only get to touch the strawberry once or they start to lose money in there. So pretty much everything else has to be perfectly in line and they get to pick those strawberries and, and if any other labor goes into it, they lose money. Obviously now in the cannabis industry, there's a, there's a lot of extra um, profitability 
to be made and, and we can have some amount of, of wasted labor going into the process. But, uh, but that is definitely one area that I like to, to look at and, and cut it, cut into if, if at all possible. Yeah. As the industry moves forward, I think you nail it. It's getting more and more competitive and uh, different growers that are approaching different markets. Some of that becomes more and more important. If you're a, a boutique grower, that's getting top dollar for your straight flower. Well, you can afford to put a little more on if you're, uh, you know, we're, we're moving into a market where there are people growing strictly for concentrates. Okay. Well, at that point, we've really got to look at, you know, what is the benefit to every time we touch the plant? If none of it's going to market, do we really need to focus on like, you know, bag appeal? What we really want to focus on is, you know, cannabinoid content and uh, probably, you know, different characteristics about making that plant easier to process. So there it's much more important. You know, we're dealing with a plant that's after being made into concentrate, less valuable. The plant itself is much less valuable by weight than flour. And when we look at the cultivation processes, there's there's things that you can do to make labor optimization easier. You know, if we look at some of the traditional amounts of energy going into things like topping and, and over deleafing, um, specific genetics can definitely offer a, a pathway into reducing how much labor is going into your work there. Yeah, and it's I think it's important to evaluate some uh, certain practices you're doing, and you know if you've always deleafed a certain way. Um, let's say you, you go with four D leaves throughout your cycle and they're evenly spaced and you feel like that's the way to do it. You might be leaving something on the table and you may not have the data you need to compare that to not doing these practices. And now there's enough people out there that have done it enough different ways. If you can read around and look at people's results, you can kind of get an idea for what's starting to work the best because a lot of times, you know, there are things that might bother us when we look at the plants as far as wanting them to look a very certain way. Like if we want, if we want a plant to look exactly like some of the best pictures that you've ever seen in high times or online, a lot of those plants are manicured right before harvest to have nice big buds. You know, <laughs> most of the, you know, it's just like the rest of the world. You don't, you don't see a picture of a, a dirty sports car. They clean it up. I just use the filters on my buds. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things you can look at and try to find places that you can reduce labor costs and, you know, that only comes around when you've got good organization and a good way to quantify and monitor how much work's getting done per unit of, or per unit of labor input. I love this topic, especially at a time right now, cultivators are dealing with a lot. The market's crazy all over the country. Um, can you guys speak to a little bit of like how Arroyo does help with task management? River City Growers straight out was like loving tasks, by the way. So yeah, maybe we can give our, our audience a little bit of an idea of how Arroyo kind of helps with labor, kind of streamlining um, the labor practices and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the first way that it does it is just building a, a uniform, consolidated digital grow journal. So when we look at capturing data from a grow, uh, a lot of this used to be done in uh, just in journals, written down, walking bench from bench, uh, capturing maybe runoff readings, maybe moisture and, and um EC readings too. And so obviously the, the digital grow journal. So if we pair that with an automated sensor system where it's instantly capturing that type of stuff, it's all going into one system. So even if you are taking manual readings on top of that, uh, it's way easier to just type them right into the database than it is to transcribe it from uh, 
a journal. I know I spent a lot of hours doing that type of work back in the days of cultivating uh, before we were working on Arroyo. Oh yeah. And even just utilizing the recipe to have your task, uh, task reminders automated. So basically, you know, you apply your recipe, you've got a calendar now. It saves a lot of time versus going back and forth between spreadsheets and staring at a whiteboard calendar and counting out days <laughs> every few days and figuring out when everything's going to happen. This just consolidates that all in one place, especially if you have, you know, three, four or five, you know, I mean, we, we have clients that have quite a few flower rooms and it would be really hard to keep track of all those schedules without some sort of tool to automate that task organization. It, you know, it, it would be a whole, I mean, for a lot of people, it can be a whole couple hours a day just trying to organize all the tasks that have to happen in the facility, especially if it's a bigger one. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up the whiteboard thing. One of, uh, one of our UX designers and early in the stages, they said, well, if we're very successful, we're going to, uh, we're going to take over the whiteboard industry because no one will need them anymore. And, and obviously that's, that's never going to be completely true. Uh, but, but I think we've done a pretty good job of utilizing computer systems to, put it up on a screen and we see it at tons of facilities where they have a facility dashboard up where they have a control room where they're looking at this type of thing. And, uh, going back to the whiteboard, I, there was one time where it was day 28 when I left on Friday and it was day 28 when I came back in on Monday. Uh, and that's one, one thing that it's nice about computers is obviously we're, we're not having to go in and update that whiteboard manually and we can apply those schedules so that the right activities go on the right days, regardless of, uh, whether the staff is, is there and, uh, has time to update that type of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, at this point where, you know, most facilities are somewhat of a melding between a farm and a factory, everything we're doing is cyclical and ideally we're doing it, you know, as close to the exact same every time as possible for consistency. So there's really no reason not to utilize some sort of automated system to track that. You know, it does so much. It consolidates, it simplifies, it helps you with consistency and accuracy. So, yeah, I mean, th these are all things that we love over here. Um, we do have a lot of questions coming in. So uh, I wanted to move on to a slightly different topic. Well, let's just talk about the one, one more thing that kind of came to oh, mind was the automated yeah. uh, harvesting system. So when we look at being able to capture plant weights really fast and, and doing some of the metric compliance work, uh, the systems that we've put in place for it make you much more efficient and reduces the amount of air that's going in from writing numbers down or tags down, weights down on, on cards, handing those off, letting someone else transcribe them. Uh, this stuff's going right into the system off that Bluetooth scale, the RFID scanner that are, are tied directly into Arroyo. So sorry to interrupt you there, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just no, I mean, that. that's, that's a great point. I mean, there's so many moving parts and there's so many different people involved. So, I mean, think about all the different things that can go wrong. Um, so anything to reduce that chance it's uh, yeah, it's big, especially involving this much money. So, uh, sorry, Seth, I cut you off. <laughs> oh, I was just going to make a little joke and you don't have to, you know, try to drop the pen anymore when your hands are all sticky from harvesting. <laughs> I mean, it, you save on so much rubbing alcohol too. So yep. there's that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, sorry. Is there anything else that you guys want to say about that? Um, I know it's a big topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could go on for quite a bit longer on it, but uh, let's keep right, moving. Cool. Well, our next question is about tissue analysis. So I feel like you guys are going to have some stuff to say about this. Um, so at the, uh, the chemical grower wants to know, what's your opinion about tissue analysis with, within cultivation? 
if you're running into any nutrient concerns, get some tissue analysis. Um, it's probably not a bad thing to do occasionally anyways, just to keep on check on, on how your plant's health is, is going beyond what a cultivator can see with their eyes. Um, you know, it does cost money though. So it's, it's kind of up to how much benefit you get out of it. But anytime you do run into some issues, I think a tissue analysis is probably one of the first steps that I would take. Yeah, it's by far the easiest way to try to quantify what kind of nutrient problems you're having. You can directly see what's deficient and solving those might not always be so simple, but at least having eyes on what's actually going on inside the plant makes a big difference versus looking at it and going, oh, yep, that's, you know, that's a calcium deficiency. Well, let's just test it real quick because if it looks like it, but it's not, then we're just chasing our tail. Uh, One thing about it is it is hard to find information about that. And uh, there are several resources out there for consultants and services to help people, you know, wade through those waters. Excellent. Yeah. We've talked about that a few times um, in previous episodes, but um, yeah, a little extra knowledge is a good thing. Um, Just a reminder, we've got another, we've got a lot of questions from Instagram, but just a reminder to the folks who are on with us live, we want to talk to you too. So if you have any questions, type them in the chat, Mandy will either ask for you or we'll unmute you so you can ask yourself. Um, This question came from Alessi Music. They were wondering if you can tell how much DLI or PPFD your plants need. Can you tell by differences in plant structure or leaf burning if the intensity is too high or if the plant is getting too many daily photons? I guess maybe we'll just open that one up on general talking about DLI uh, and kind of dive into the specifics of what they're talking about there. Uh, DLI being daily lighting integral. So that is going to be the photon flux density times by the number of seconds, minutes, or hours, depending on the units that you're using. Um, so it's just photon flux density times time. So it's integrating the amount of energy under the PPFD curve. And, uh, so a couple things when we're keeping in mind with what DLI should be is it's nice to keep it fairly consistent throughout the cycle. Obviously we are stepping it up throughout, uh, the early stages of plant growth. I think one of the most important things to kind of keep in mind though, is when we're going from 18 hour cycle to a 12 hour cycle that we want to make sure that the DLI is the same for the plants. So when we're flipping from veg to flower, going from that 18 to a 12 hour light cycle, we actually have to up the intensity by about 33% or so, just to make sure that we're getting the same amount of energy to the plant and it can continue its uh, rate of growth uh, and make sure that we're not actually halting it during that that transition phase yeah and so you know with that the challenge becomes right how do i increase from 150 ppfd in my cloning room to uh you know trying to get that 550 to 650 at the end of veg and that can be a tough strategy to harden plants off to light but it is something you have to start doing early and ramp up and that can be a challenge when you're starting to get into those sub two week veg times especially that a lot of our multi-tier growers are experiencing trying to keep that plant height down. Yeah. And it, obviously with greenhouse growing, uh, TLI is a, a lot harder to manage. Um, you're going to need to do some supplemental lighting and change how much supplemental light that you're, uh, producing for those plants based on cloud coverage, what time of year you've got, where you're, what your, um, your longitude is in, uh, in location. And so, I think uh, as far as digging into some of the stuff they was talking about, burning leaves, it's not 
typically related to light amount. I think it's usually going to be more related to some nutrient composition type of stuff. Um, well, what it could be is too close to the light. Well, I was going to say, yeah. that especially when we're talking about, you know, whether we know if you have LED or HPS. So like HPS, when you see that typical burnt leaf, that's the leaf surface temperature getting extremely high because there's a large amount of radiant energy hitting it. And the actual surface temperature of that particular leaf is heating up. You know, that's why we see only those top leaves close to the light. Under LED, we don't typically see as much of that, although with some of the, uh, you know, current enhanced spectrum lights, that does happen a little more. Uh, but if you do get those those too close and you actually have an intense enough LED, you will get a little bit of bleaching on the leaf surface itself. And, um, you know, I, I think probably one of the best ways to dial that in the future is going to be using something like a leaf barometer so we can really figure out exactly how much PPF, PPFD we need to get maximum transpiration in a given time. Um, as far as dialing it, I think the guidelines out there have been pretty great. You know, shoot for a little over a thousand through flower. If you can go higher and you have the CO2 supplementation to do it, do it. Um, but it, it, that's not a new science that I think we need to explore super deep. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Um, also, we just got a question in the chats, actually. Husky, uh, I can ask for you. Uh, Seth and Jason, what are good crops during irrigation and basic environmental environmental parameters for good density and ripeness in buds? That's uh, a pretty general question. Um, I think I would I would watch some of the other open office hours that we've gone through, kind of the different phases of crop steering, and, and talked about the general parameters that we recommend. Always do keep in mind that uh, you know making sure your environment is dialed before you do some of that crop steering, and also keep in mind the genetic variance. The preference of those genetics can vary quite a bit as well. Yeah, you know, and if we're talking about density and ripeness, you may be asking more about that last phase where we're going generative. Um, certain strains are going to require a longer generative phase at the end. Certain strains are going to require, you know, a little bit more generative stress as far as promoting ripeness. Um, another thing to remember when we are talking about ripeness is, uh, all of these plants, once we put them under a 12, 12 photo period, they have a clock that starts ticking essentially in terms of maturity and ripeness. So not everything is going to come down at 56 or 63 days. There are some plants out there that, yep, they just aren't finished at 63 and uh, that old school outdoor rule of uh, if you think it's done, try to wait a week and harvest if you can still applies if you're trying to really dial what ripe is on some strains. And I think we actually talked about this before. A good rule of thumb is if you're testing and you've got way higher THCA and almost no THC, that's a good way to look at it. And then, you know, that should correspond a little bit to the trichome coloration at harvest. One of my favorite ways to kind of keep tabs on how ripe each strain was for each different cycles was have it get in a USB microscope and take snapshots of what it looks like in there, upload it to your harvest group in Araya, and then you can keep track. Hey, when we run it at 63 days, this is the amount of amber that we get in those trichomes. So when we stretch it out another three days, is that uh, a more preferred, um, THC composition? Is it giving it a little bit nice color? Is, is that what we prefer as well? So do some good documentation on, on, on what you're doing in the, in the different variables as far as going into good density and ripeness. Um, and, and then dial it in there from each strain. 
it's all about continuous improvement and learning from uh, from the past, right? Um, Husky, you'll have to let us know if that answered your question. And uh, we do have a lot of resources over on our site. I'll drop a link in the chat for you here in a second. But we do have a couple more questions that have come in. So I'm going to go ahead and move on down to those two. Juice Hydro wants to know, what's the best generative cues for weeks of flower and water content percentage in two, it says GL, Dutch plantain? Does that make sense to you guys? Two gallon Dutch mm -hmm. plantain cocoa. What was the beginning of that question again? What's the best generative cues for weeks of flower and water content percentage in two a gallon Dutch plantain? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll kind of just address the two gallon Dutch plant. Um, two gallon cocoa is a great size media for some of the larger plants. Uh, you know, we're stretching a five and a half, six foot plant and we're definitely trying to get as much mass off that as possible. We're going to have pretty serious red zone and a two gallon cocoa is, is a good choice for that. Sometimes if we're growing a little bit small, smaller media, I'll go with the smaller, um, smaller than two gallon, but for most indoor, I think two gallons is going to be about the biggest size that I prefer to grow in. Um, as far as generative cues and weeks, uh, very strain dependent. Uh, obviously if we're looking to see that our generative cues to a plant, uh, are successful, we'll see that the stretching decreases during that time. And, uh, most of the time we're just running P1 irrigations, uh, until that stretching is mostly seized. And then we'll, uh, we'll go back into some vegetative growing. Yeah. And you know, um, a big important part of that is crop registration. And then also recognizing that like when we do have stretch, that doesn't mean the plant completely stopped or when the, the excuse me, when stretch ends and we're going to end generative, that doesn't mean the plant has 100% stopped growing vertically. It's just that our rate of growth has slowed down very significantly in the fast few days. And we're noticing, you know, more small uh, pistols and bracts forming. We're starting to watch the plant switch over into that generative phase. And like Jason said, that is quite variable, you know, strain to strain. Some strains, it's all the way down at 15, 17 days. Some strains you're pushing up into the 30s, even close to 40s. So you've really just got to watch your plants, read them. And, you know, like we keep hammering on. Pictures, 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 notes, registration, get it in one spot so you can actually use that data. I know there's thousands and thousands of growers out there like me who have binders and notebooks that are never going to get entered into the computer just sitting around. So, yeah, stay I'm, on it. I'm glad <laughs> you... Uh you're nailing it there, man. As far as talking about crop registration stuff, when, when we talk about, you know, the end of stretch, it's, it's a very vague thing when we just talk about it. But when you actually take a manual reading every day or every other day on those plant heights, it's pretty easy to see the slope of that uh, plant growth change. And so definitely take note of the plant size coming out of, uh, out of 18.6 and keep track of that from run to run. And, and then look at the uh, duration of, of uh, plant growth from there and, and compare it to get the ideal plant size and, and shape that you're looking for. Yeah. You know, and remember there's a few other variables to look at, like with something, a cocoa kind of like Dutch plant, we're operating that 55 to 70% top end range for field capacity, which is highly useful. And that gives us, you know, down to about 25 to 30 that we want to safely work with in terms of dry bag. But if I were on that same plant, the same size and a one or one and a half gallon versus the two, my generative irrigation strategy might look a little different because that plant's drying fast back faster. Maybe I have to put a maintenance shot on starting halfway through my generative steer. 
if that's the case, I can't really compare those two runs side by side with a different pot when we're talking about how long stretch is because we're not putting as much generative stress on one plant compared to the other. So you want to really try to minimize variables when you're establishing those cues for your plants and just be as consistent as possible. Yeah, exactly right. Make sure that your environment's dialed in as well, because those variables can play. If you change a room and say, hey, we're going to try out some LEDs, that's definitely going to change those timelines and and growth parameters. So it's a very proactive approach to be reducing the variables that you're comparing between cycles. Awesome. Thank you for that. I love these tips. And actually, while we're on the topic of cocoa, Smooth CL submitted a question. Um, They were wondering, any tips for a cocoa beginner with drip irrigation if you're only every three to four days at your plants? Thoughts on that? Um, Great choice. Cocoa's a little bit more forgiving than uh, than Rockwell. And if you're only there every three to four days, you can use an automated drip system to make sure that those plants are probably going to be getting the water that they need on a daily basis. Uh, if you're beginning with, with cocoa, it's probably the best first step into a, you know, a soilless media from, from where you have been. Um, yeah, watch some more episodes of, of this stuff. I think we've gone over a lot of, of starting with, uh, with cocoa and, and how to approach it for general irrigation strategies. Get Arroyo. Uh, it's probably one of the easiest ways to get uh, from the beginner to intermediate grower level is using sensor data and applying uh, some of the knowledge that we share with y'all. Yeah, and I know you mentioned, you know, three or four days, are you talking about, you know, irrigation frequency? Like, are we talking about a big cocoa pot that we're waiting a long time to water on? And, and if so, uh, you know, I'd probably look at a smaller pot. Yeah, I think he means way. physically there. Physically there. Yeah. Okay, then, yeah, you're good to go. Uh, I agree with Jason. It's great. One thing I'll always warn people, when you buy from a particular manufacturer, they have instructions that come for a reason. So certain manufacturers may recommend, you know, rinsing the media at least once or twice before planting in it. Others may say rinse and then use your nutrient solution to hydrate. Make sure you follow that. That's in place. And, you know, especially if you're new in cocoa, stick to a basic recipe. Buy a pre-made nutrient line. You know, don't go too wild. Unless you're already familiar with mixing up your own nutrients, that's not another variable you want to throw in. And uh, otherwise, just have fun with the cocoa. It's, it's pretty nice. Yeah. And if, you know, if you are there only in person every three or four days, just have enough sensors and types of systems to just validate that the irrigations are occurring, that your environmental parameters are staying within check. Do as much manual readings as you have time for while you're on the site for every three or four days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if it's just to back up what Seth was saying, if you were talking about only irrigating every three or four days, then that's a whole different story. So, um, have fun. It is so fun. Um, we do want to remind everyone who's on the show today, if you guys have questions, please do drop those in the chat. We'll make sure that we ask those to Seth and Jason. Uh, we have some more questions rolling in, so we're going to go ahead and get to those. Um, BMG389 wants to know, um, they're looking for guidelines for a dryback aggressiveness on a first run with the new strain. Do you guys have any tips for that? Uh, so basically depending on your media, you've got a certain bottom line that we want to drive back to, you know, with Rockwell, we call that 40%. 
with uh, cocoa, typically about 25%. Hold steady to those lines. Don't get too aggressive when you've got a new strain. Um, if you really want to push that aggressive dryback, you know, that's okay. Maybe go a little further, but really it depends on the media type. If in rock wool, you know, you're not watching it really close and we have an over drying event. Now we've created a lot of problems for the rest of flower. You know, once we've lost that field capacity, if you're in cocoa, you could push it a little more just because if we over dry, we don't necessarily lose that media integrity. Um, so honestly, if I would say don't push it too hard. But if you did, make sure you're in cocoa. Yeah, another couple options that might be good is um, contact your supplier of that new strain and see if they have any ideas on, on what it might grow like as well. Uh, you know, if they've already tested it out, like I know a lot of um, clone and seed supply houses do, then uh, chat with them. See if they have any ideas on if this is going to be a short and stubby plant or a tall, stretchy plant and, and go from there. It's, Obviously, each amount of aggressiveness is dependent on, on what the plant is doing with it. So, Yeah, and I will say I've also found it very useful if I can source most of my genetics, like not necessarily most of my genetics, but multiple strains from the same nursery or breeder that is using a lot of the same parents to cross with. Generally, they have a pretty good idea about certain characteristics. Like, you know, lately we're seeing a lot of mat crosses out there and they have that as a dominant trait, shorter structure. So a lot of times, if you talk to someone knowledgeable who's been selling the same strains, at least for a while, as Jason said, they will have a few tips, at least, you know, say they'll at least be able to tell you, hey, everyone's harvesting this at 60 days, 56, 63. Here's here's kind of what kind of bud we've noticed off it. This one's fatter and chunkier. This one's a little more elongated, you know, not quite as tight of a bud structure. All that stuff is good info because you can start to watch how your plants grow and then compare it to what they said should happen. And if it didn't happen for you, well, you can start figuring out why. What did they do different? Great. Man, we're having a lot of questions coming through the chat right now. Um, Bilbo Baggins, do you want to go ahead and take yourself off mute and ask Seth and Jason uh, directly just to give a little bit more context? I can definitely ask for you, though. Okay. Sure. Hey, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, okay, so... In terms of implementation and rolling out an Arroyo platform, I know that adoption curves range in different organizations in terms of their, you know, technical aptitude or just workflow in general. And I'm wondering what sort of learning modules Arroyo is either thinking of supplying or is already supplying to ensure that this adoption is sustainable and it's not just I'm not saying it is, but it doesn't erupt as a platform that gets installed and then only certain people are using it and it's really not adopted. A couple of ways that we do our best to help uh, facilities and uh, facilities that have high turnover, we always struggle with just because they, they're always training people faster than the people can get used to a system like this. But uh, we do initial onboarding. Seth's awesome at these. I've done hundreds of them. Uh, so every facility we get into, do some walkthroughs, make sure equipment get installed, gets installed appropriately. It's functioning and online. And basically do a personalized system tutorial, which is asking the questions about what your goals are and how your facility operates and then dig in to understand the best it can work for you. Uh, in the long term, we've always got our 
our help center right there in the app with walkthrough tutorials, um, videos. Uh, I think we're working on a uh, um, FAQ. I know there's a quick start in there that goes over some of the frequently answered asked questions. Um, and then we've got our support teams if you run into you know technical issues and, and other types of stuff like that. Yeah, we usually consider an onboarding period a little over two months. So you'll have a few meetings where we just talk about sensor installation and software and then rolling through that whole first crop, you know, helping you interpret the data, implement crop steering strategies and making sure you understand how to use the system. That being said, you know, Jason just mentioned some of these facilities do have high turnover. It's probably a good investment on any grower owner's part to invest in their employees a little bit and try to find someone that can be their Arroyo champion and stick around. And then also realize that once you do that, that's now on their resume and that's turning into a marketable skill in the industry. So protect your investment, keep that Arroyo champion around. Awesome. Thanks. Yep. It's such a good question. Um, Bilbo Baggins, did you want to go ahead and ask your, your next question? Okay. It has to do with task management within the Arroyo architecture. And I'm wondering if you think it's, I mean, this may be very subjective. If you think it's enforceable from a management perspective that the tasks uh, are adhered to and completed in the task management tool being that it is connected to the harvest group. So that's generally the question. So, yeah, you have the ability to see if um, people have actually completed those tasks or not and time them as well. And then I can still, can I still connect that time bound information to the, is it available through the API and then tracked on a user? It's currently not available through the API. Oh, right now we've only got sensor data uh, on our open API. Okay. Cool. And then I might as well just roll out my last question. Do you have a crop registration rollout planned for the platform so that we could just do all of this inside one system instead of, you know, right now our crop registrations are being done in uh, basically Google form? Yeah. So our, our manual readings uh, system is kind of what we consider the crop registration parts. I don't know if that covers all of what you guys are doing. Uh, in our next release, we've got some pretty cool stuff where you can just template the manual readings that you want an employee to take at a specific time in the harvest group, and then they can just go through and fill out the ones that are required. Yep. And you can also display most of your manual readings on the graph too. So those will be attached to your harvest group. And let's say like you're in there, you know, pulling a pH reading every day, you would have those single point readings displayed on your graph if you, if you chose to, to look back at for the whole run or, you know, any period of time you wanted to look at. Okay. Uh, most of my questions always center around how can I get the data that would be produced in the system and quantify it outside of the system. So thanks for your answers and look forward to any updates that uh, lead us down that path. For sure. And just so you know, too, you can also always export like all of your graph data on a CSV to store locally if you want to. Um, I know if I was in business, that's something I would certainly consider is downloading, you know, every run's worth of information into a CSV file and having it just in case, uh, for whatever reason, I didn't have internet or I wanted to run some analytics on it that weren't available in Arroyo. Yeah. Like, okay. Makes sense. Thanks awesome. again. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for your questions. Uh, we always love having uh, our repeat attendees, so it's great seeing you again. We have some questions coming in through our YouTube, though, so I'm going to ask those. Um, Jay wants to know, before you mentioned when runoff pH goes up or down, it's using, <laughs> before you mentioned when runoff pH goes up or down, it's using certain nutrients more than others. Can you elaborate more on specifics if possible? I understand there are more variables to it, though. Uh, typically off a of pH, you're not going to get a very good read on which exact plant nutrients are being uptaken. But what we can look at is the fact that most plant essential elements are a cation. That's the form we put them into solution in. That's the form the plant can uptake. Because a cation is negative, we're pulling those out. We're leaving positive ions in the form of hydrogen. That's driving the pH up. So it's not necessarily telling us whether it's nitrogen, calcium, or any particular nutrient. But what it is telling us is how aggressively the plant is uptaking the nutrients we're trying to supply to it. So if we had a situation where the plant's taking up so much that it throws that pH balance off, sometimes we might have to say raise the EC so we have enough of what we want that we're putting in every day in order to you know overcome the fact that the plant's pulling that out faster than we can flush out all the ions we don't want in there. I hope that sums it up. Awesome. Yeah, I I hope that it did too. Um, But if we get a follow-up question, I will definitely shoot that y'all's way. Um, Yeah, so we're going to keep rolling down our list. I'll pass it to Keisha. Awesome. Thank you. We love hearing from all these live, uh, these live attendees. So good. Okay. We have a question from Instagram. This is from flavor chaser 420. This is about sensors. They want to know when using your substrate water content, uh, electrical conductivity meter would proper use be to insert the three prong meter into the substrate and then leave it there for repeated testing. That's a good way to do it. Uh, I mean, if you've got a few, I'm guessing this is related to blue, um, or our solar, excuse me, our solar system. Uh, yeah, with that solace, obviously if you're trying to check a whole bunch of plants, that's not a very realistic option, but one of the things I guess that is most important is that we're avi- avoiding going back into the same holes that we've already created when testing. And so if you are testing the same plant, uh, throughout over time, it is nice just to leave it in there and go in there and, and write down what those readings look like over time. Uh, obviously if we're going to be pronging, pronging a whole bunch of plants, then, uh, then that substrate might get a little bit aerated over time and we might have to switch to a few different plants depending on how many samples we've taken. Yeah. And I think one thing that's important to remember is if you do that, um, you know, in situ measurements are not always, uh, totally equatable to spot measurements because when you install that sensor and leave it in there for, let's say the duration of the flowering period, that plant's rooting in around it a little harder. We've got constant contact with the media. There's a few small variables that mean that if I plug a Taros 12 and a nose into a block and leave it there for two months, I might get a slightly different reading off of the solace that I stabbed in there because that hasn't been in contact with that media while it's settled for the past two months. So both are great ways to look at your crop health and see where it's going. Um, one thing to really remember about it, especially with the spot checks is we are looking at a world of averages. You know, if you want to do, you know, say spot check with the solace to the point that you could have the kind of data that you get with Arroyo, you need an army of full-time people out there (laughs) just (laughs) walking around with their phone, grabbing readings. So it's important to realize like how much data you can get with a certain amount of, uh, financial and labor input, I guess. 
all really important things to keep in mind. Uh, you guys, it's popping over on our YouTube channel right now. So we're getting more questions and a little bit of uh, shout outs that they said solid explanation on the pH increase and in runoff question. So uh, yeah, uh, but we have another question. So Raymond wants to know, when's the best time to read accurate EC in cocoa? Is it full saturation? Uh, a little bit tricky to answer that question. And this is why we like time series data, uh, because you don't know what the best time to check the EC and the substrate is. If you want to know what it is at field capacity, then take it at field capacity. If you want to know what it is when uh, it's peaking just before you irrigate it again, then take it at that point. But, uh, you know, without that time series data, you're just going to have to guess what it is in between those two, uh, two reading points. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it depends on what your goals are for that. Are you trying to really hard keep your crop inside of a certain range or are we trying to look for signs of uh, EC spiking too high? In which case we might want to do that right before irrigation and say, okay, our driest point in the day, how dry are we and how high, high is the EC going? Like for me, that's what's going to drive my irrigation choices for the coming day is uh, if I overdried last night, I need to put more on in my P1s today in order to make up for that extra volume so that I don't end up in a downward trend with my peak volume every day. However, if you're looking at, you know, okay, how well am I stacking? Well, what, you know, what do we look like at the lowest and what do we look like at the highest? We kind of want to see that range and see what's happening. So if at the lowest we're at, you know, three right at feed EC, but at the highest we're at 15, probably a strong sign we are severely over drying and pushing that dry back way too hard. You got to watch it. Um, yeah, we're, we're keep getting questions over there on YouTube. So we're going to go on down our list. Uh, Sir Dirty, uh, can't, can't say it without laughing. Sorry. Sir Dirty wants to know, would you all recommend a cocoa and peat mix or only cocoa, cocoa noir or cocoa core? Sorry. Or only peat. What's y'all's recommendation? It's going to be a little bit of personal choice. What's available? What, uh, what's the highest quality of type of product that you can get? I like cocoa personally, straight cocoa for me has been extremely predictable. Uh, it's very forgiving and I, it's what I know how to run. Uh, yeah. Cocoa and Pete have very similar characteristics. Honestly, they work fine alone. They work fine in a blend. It really comes down to uh, how you feel about it politically whether you want to pay to ship coconut husk over here from Sri Lanka or India by a diesel boat, or you want to strip mine some peat bogs in Canada. So uh, it, I would say as far as crop performance goes, they're pretty equal. A lot of the time cocoa is a little more cheap and accessible just because peat already has the popularity in horticulture outside of cannabis that's already supporting that market. So anytime a grower, is buying peat we're competing with a whole uh a whole other existing industry whereas with cocoa we do have a lot of companies that are designed primarily around supplying cannabis producers so it is nice to take advantage of that and ensure you know that we have a supply of cocoa if anyone was ordering large amounts of it through uh you know the whole covid epidemic right when the supply chain broke down, things got very difficult. So if we had to, where I was working compete with other producers for peat that weren't just cannabis, we probably would have maybe not been able to get it for a few crops. 
Awesome. Yeah, this is great. Um, loving all of these live questions coming in. Thank you so much, everybody on YouTube. We have a few minutes left, but I just want to point out anybody came on late, anybody who's checking us out for the first time, we have a raffle every week. We give away our, our limited edition Arroyo t-shirts and we give an Arroyo hat to first time question ask, askers who are located here in the U.S. Uh, and that stands for you guys on YouTube too. So definitely share your email addresses with us if you want to be entered into the drawing and be contacted to get an Arroyo hat. So with that said, I have one last question from Instagram. Our live attendees, there's still a little time for you to drop yours in the chat. Let us know what questions you have. But uh, ABD Flying Zone asks, I have a group of plants that dry back from 45% at 20 to 25% in 24 hours in soil. Should I water every day? I like to water every day. I mean, at those dryback rates, I would think you're going to be watering a good number of times a day. Uh, and and that's if that's during your vegetative, then those are some seriously hungry plants, if, especially if you're in the right size media. If it's a you know generative steering that you're doing, then it's probably right on to do uh, you know just P1s every day. Yeah. And I mean, that's something to remember. If you don't embrace the art of uh, matching a smaller pot size than what might be, have been previously intuitive to your system, um, you're not going to be able to crop steer. We have to be able to get, you know, at least a 10 to 20% dry back within a given day in order to apply some of these irrigation strategies and have them produce the effects on the plant we want. If the pot's too big and we can only water every other day or every third day, we effectively can't go vegetative because we don't have a media that's drying out fast enough to keep putting those irrigations on. And if we switched over to try to veg, um, we, we would just drown the plant. It wouldn't dry back enough. We'd have other symptoms of overwatering that were an issue and potentially some root pathogens. Awesome. Thank you guys. We have had so many great questions this week. Um, so Mandy, any other live questions come in? At the, in, the next, in, the, in the last couple minutes? Um, you know, there's a lot of chatter. Um, our community is sharing a lot of cultivation education with each other, but that was the final question we had over on YouTube. So okay. yeah, thank, okay. thanks everyone for, your, for the questions today. Yeah, keep the conversation going, folks. And uh, we do this every week. Um, reminder, everybody who asked a question live, please type your email address in the chat. We want to put you in a raffle to win one of our t-shirts. They're awesome. And maybe send you a hat if you haven't gotten one already. Seth and Jason, before we wrap up, anything else you want to say to the folks before we go? Just keep growing the good stuff, everybody. Yeah. Stay interested. Yeah. You're, you're in a good place if you enjoy what you do for work. It's always good. Oh my goodness. What a great way to end it. I love it. Thank you, Seth and Jason, for such a great conversation. Thank you to everybody who submitted questions. This is what this show is about. We are all about uh, putting you in touch with the experts. That's right, Bilbo, for science. We want to keep you in touch with the experts and we want to help you uh, improve your cultivation production process. So if you have any questions about Arroyo, feel free to book a demo. We'll be happy to talk to you about your cultivation. And then for everybody else who's just uh, looking for a topic that they want it covered in a future office hours, please feel free to post it in the chat. Um, send us an email at support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram. We want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also be on the YouTube, our Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share with your network and spread the word. 
Thank you so much, Mandy, for being with me every week. Thank you, Seth and Jason. Thank you to our team. And we'll see you all next week. See ya. Bye, everyone. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.